Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Hello and welcome to Studio One. I'm Shelley and I work in public programs here at ACME. Um, firstly, I would like to show my respect and acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today, the, the Kulin Nations. Uh, live in the studio is our monthly exploration of all things television. And tonight we'll be stepping back in time to explore the fabulous upstairs-downstairs world of Downton Abbey. For two seasons and one spectacular Christmas special, we have followed the aristocratic Crawley family and life inside their grand home. Joining us tonight is Mel Campbell. Mel has spent her working life as a journalist and editor. Her key research interests are fashion, popular music, media and the wonderful underrated banalities of everyday life. <laughs> Joining her is Green Guide editor Debbie Enker. Debbie has been writing about film and TV for more than 20 years. Columnist, not editor. Oh, sorry. sorry. Columnist. <laughs> Don't do that to Andrew. It's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Um, you will also hear her sparring with John Fain on 774 ABC Radio on a Thursday morning, which I always enjoy. Um, another Green Guide film and TV reviewer is Peter Matesi. Peter is also a script writer and has spent most of his professional life writing in the world of television, soap opera for Neighbours, Secret Life of Us and even EastEnders. <laughs> but leading, uh, leading this evening's explora exploration will be editor and blogger Karen Pickering. Karen is the host of Chercher la Femme, yeah? <laughs> a monthly digest of current affairs and popular culture from a, a feminist perspective. Um, before I hand over to Kim, just a few uh, uh, spots of housekeeping. Um, we, we are recording this session tonight for a podcast, um, so can I please ask you to turn your phones onto silent? Um, if uh, you need to leave the space um, during the session, there's actually a door on the side here um, which we'll be able to usher you through to. Um, and apologies uh, for the intrusion of music. Um, unfortunately, there's a... Uh, there is a, uh, an event downstairs, um, so uh, it will oscillate between loud and louder as we, as we progress. Um, uh, but now it's time to lace up your corset, uh, ring the dinner bell and take a look back at what has made this addictive series so popular. Thanks, Karen. Thank you. Thank you and welcome. Uh, I think we'll be able to just talk over the top of the, the music as we work our way through the Downton conversation. Uh, welcome to you all and thanks for coming. Uh, we, this uh, tonight is, is presented as part of the Live in the Studio series at ACME, which is uh, it, it dedicated to exploring the incredible popularity of series television. And as a lot of you will know, um, you kind of need your, a separate diary these days to keep up with which episode of which season of which show you're up to. And so I really, uh, I really love that there's a space at ACME for us to, to think about these shows in a little bit more depth than just I like it 
but um, without losing that kind of the fun and the reason why, why we love watching them so much. So tonight we're going to take, that's dramatic. <laughs> tonight we're going to take a trip uh, to the fictional world of Downton Abbey, uh, a stately mansion set in a real historical context uh, with some genuine things to teach us about the Edwardian period in England. Uh, but with far more emphasis, I think, on cracking storylines and uh, the occasional crash into outright melodrama. Uh, there's an emphasis on creating tension of the dramatic, familial and romantic kind. And there is also a healthy appetite for sentimentality, nostalgia and some very nice lamps. I don't know <laughs> if you have noticed that the lamps of Downton Abbey have their own tumbler. Which you can yes, which you can uh, you can and look up right now if you have a device with you. Um, but I hadn't realised that someone had had uh, put together that kind of detail. But as we're going to find out over the course of tonight, people who like Downton Abbey really like Downton Abbey. So um, it's a show that's been a runaway success in its home market of the UK and here in Australia, um, where we have obviously just waited until it was available in the shops. <laughs> and then gone and purchased the DVDs and then placed them into the player and watched um, the show. Um, but um, unlikely, uh, sorry, un a little bit surprisingly for a British period piece, it was also huge in the US, so I'm sure we'll talk about that uh, as well. But tonight I want to uh, start by handing you over to, to Debbie. Uh, so please make her feel very welcome. Um, please, yep, join me in welcoming Debbie Enker. Karen has said, and as I guess you all know because you're here, um, Downton could probably be described as something of a phenomenon. Um, it has found a wide and devoted audience um, and it's achieved really very huge ratings here in the US and in the UK. Um, last year in Australia, the first season of the show rated about two million viewers every week, which even with everyone justifiably complaining so bitterly about the huge number of ads, um, is an enormous figure. Um, in the UK, it averaged about nine million viewers, though Peter mentioned earlier that the Christmas special got 20 million viewers, which was some, what, what percentage did like you a say? Third. A third of the people watching television on Christmas Day. I mean, I know it's cold there and it's dark by then. <laughs> and they have a big tradition of Christmas Day viewing that we don't have. But still, 20 million people. It's just extraordinary. Um, one, of, one of the reasons I think it's been so popular in the UK is, is that it's, although it sort of appears in a sense like the classic BBC costume drama, it actually screens on ITV with ads. And when it started in the first season, it started on the back of the X Factor. So all the people who normally don't watch the BBC were already tuned perhaps to ITV and the BBC viewers came over to see it anyway because they would. And the ratings there were enormous. But even this second season, um, currently screening here on Channel 7, on Sunday night drew about one and a half million viewers, which I think is not as big as last year, but still a really large number. And given that many people who are, you know, addicted to it have seen it on DVD ad-free months ago, 
um, the fact that it's still holding that strongly, even though they've delayed the screening of it months after the DVDs were legitimately available online, um, <laughs> really speaks to how broadly this program appeals to people. And I'm kind of interested in why something that has, I think, effectively um, been described as a posh soap, I mean, a period drama set on an English country estate, has proved so popular at this particular time and why it draws so many people in. And I think one of the reasons is um, there are staples in television. Television works in fashion and in cycles. At particular times, police programs might be really popular. At other times, it might, might be hospital dramas. It could even be, as it is at the moment, um, talent quests and competitions. And for a really long time, there hadn't been the big, handsome-looking period drama. I mean, there was Upstairs, Downstairs in the early 70s, and there was Brideshead Revisited in the early 80s. I guess there was Pride and Prejudice since then, but it's really been a long time between drinks. And um, when he was here late last year for the um, Screen Producers Association conference, um, Gareth Neem, who's the executive producer of Downton, talked about how the show had allowed the British to reclaim a genre that was truly their own, the country house genre. They had, you know, grabbed it back with Downton. And he thought, as well, it had been a very long time since they'd had a show like this. And I think one of the reasons, possibly, that it, it, it appealed so broadly was its commercial television platform. But in another way, it's a most unlikely hit to have such broad appeal because at the moment the kind of period dramas that get people excited and talking are things like Mad Men or Game of Thrones. They're not like upstairs, downstairs. And in thinking about why um, this one had been as successful as it has been, I've kind of come to the conclusion that it's about um, size and speed. It's about the size of the cast for me, and the speed of the storytelling. The opening segment from the first episode of season two. So we've established that Matthew is at the front. He's fighting in the Somme. It's November 1916. So the early sequence, which we only saw a bit of, was all Matthew in the trenches and then talking about coming home to Downton. And then we cut, there's the credit sequence, which we haven't seen there, and then there's the reintroduction back into the world of Downton. And in about three minutes, we are introduced to about 20 characters. And for people who've seen the first series, we know who they all are. It's just like bringing us back into the world. Matthew's saying, it seems like another world, and suddenly Anna's opening the windows, letting in the light, and there we are again. And this is um, some of the stuff that we see just in that three minutes. Anna opening the shutters and giving instructions about how the house runs to Ethel, the new maid, who is already resentful and bristling. There are preparations underway for a charity fundraiser for the local hospital, with Carson carefully supervising everything because standards must be maintained even in wartime. Uh, Mrs Hughes is also in attendance. William, the, the valet who is replacing um, Bates, who we are told has gone to London, is trying to get the Earl's uniform together properly and not succeeding because he doesn't know how to dress him, much to the Earl's frustration. 
the Earl is unhappy with his role um, as being responsible for the home counties. He's in uniform, but he longs for active service. So already introducing his resentfulness about his age and the fact that he won't have an active role in the war. O'Brien is smoking in the courtyard, as she is so often, <laughs> but without the company of her usual smoking buddy, Thomas, because he has enlisted for the army and is in the medical corps on the Somme, and it will appear later. In fact, it's him holding up his hand and his finger being shot that ends that first episode. But he's enlisted in the army in the hope of elevating himself to a life beyond a life in service. We've seen the Earl coming down the stairs, preceded by his beloved Labrador, Isis, who features in her own storyline, Come the Christmas Special. Um, at the breakfast table, we've seen Cora and Sybil. Sybil receiving distressing news, another casualty of war, someone she knows and, in fact, has danced with. And Cora, who has broken her regular habit, obviously, of breakfasting late in bed and coming to the table early because she's preparing for the arrival of her cousin Isabel and her mother-in-law and without great enthusiasm for either of them. Meanwhile, downstairs, Mrs Patmore is bossing Daisy around and preparing for another dinner, but trying to make do given the short supplies during the war. William is hanging around Daisy and complaining that he can't enlist to fight because his father objects and he wants to join the war effort. Mrs Patmore is telling him he's much better off at home and those who've seen the second series will know that that, in fact, would have been the case. Then cousin Isabel arrives to help organise the event um, and she's, you know, a little officious and a little bossy, but right in there. And finally, the Countess, the Dowager Violet, sweeps in to arrange the flowers and immediately after that, this is Cora's flower arranging skills. <laughs> so the, really the only major character missing, and this is three minutes, this is an extraordinary amount of information, so many characters, so much happening, many of them with their own storylines. Um, the only major character missing from that introductory three minutes is Lady Mary, the eldest daughter, who um, we discover very soon after is in London and is about to return and introduce to the family the newspaper baron, Sir Richard Carlyle. Very soon after, cousin Isabel drops the bombshell news that Matthew has been become engaged to Lavinia Swire. So in about three minutes, there is a massive amount of information. There are a huge number of characters being juggled. And I think one of the reasons that Downton works so well is that it has a, a regular ensemble cast of about 20 characters, upstairs and downstairs. That's a huge number of people. It's about three times what you would normally get, expect in a drama series. And one of the great accomplishments of this series and one of the reasons I think so many people respond to it is because the writer, Julian Fellows, does a masterful juggling act of keeping so many characters, each with individual storylines, going. So he has the major arcs, which are actually very soapy arcs. They are Matthew and Mary, on again, off again, are they going to get together? And downstairs, it's, of course, Bates and Anna. And the, the love affair between those two couples is like the spine that holds the whole thing together. Mm -hmm. But within that, all these other characters have their individual storylines bubbling along. Some of them are longer and some of them are shorter. <coughs> but there is this intense sense of activity in that place all the time. Something is always happening. Something's always moving. There are things going on. Um, I think it's been rightly observed about the show that it's, it's about breadth rather than depth. 
Um, but I think it is, it's deceptive because at one level it's about this, this titled family and a lifestyle that is really about getting dressed for dinner and then having dinner and who's coming to dinner and what gala charity event will they be going to or what ball will they pre be preparing for. It's a somewhat idle lifestyle. It's different in season two because the war has started and, you know, that has changed things. But essentially it moves incredibly quickly, even though it is about this lifestyle. Part of that is, of course, because the servants are very busy dressing people for dinner and serving it. But otherwise, <laughs> it's, it's kind of, it's quick. Nothing, nothing hangs around for very long. It keeps your interest up. Um, and I think the fact that it, it weaves real events with the fictional ones always work, also works very well for it. But even then, the speed of the storytelling is evident. In the second season, which runs eight episodes, World War I takes up six of them. They don't even stretch it to a full season. It's like <laughs> it starts at the beginning of World War I, we're there, we heard at the end of season one that war had broken out, we're there in the trenches right at the beginning of season two, by episode six, Armistice. The Spanish flu epidemic is dealt with in one episode, <laughs> episode eight, the, the final of um, season two. So these, you know, they, they don't stretch things out at all. Um, and I think that the idea of the longer arcs, the love affairs that you become involved in, will Matthew and Mary get together? What is going to keep them apart? What's going to happen now? He's got this new fiancé who's actually very sweet. You know, th that kind of keeps, keeps you in there. What will happen next? What will happen next? But I think Fellows really juggles all the other stuff really cleverly. Um, they form the spine of the show. But in the second season, I've also found, um, for me, the, the, the sense of the bustling activity has remained, but a couple of the shorter storylines I found um, a bit less satisfying. I was a bit more aware of the mechanics of it than I was in the first one, where I just was flowing along with it and thinking, I can't wait to see more. I think um, the, the, the sort of storyline about the Earl's attraction to the widowed mother and housemaid, Jane, didn't quite work. I didn't quite buy it. And the brief appearance of the um, injured soldier, Patrick, who claimed to be a survivor of the Titanic, um, who was really one of the heirs to... Um, one of the heirs uh, who'd been uh, forgotten about or presumed dead and suddenly his amnesia disappeared following <laughs> an explosion during wartime. I guess they figured he didn't work either because he came and went pretty quickly. Um, however... The other things that I kind of had a problem with in terms of the storytelling in the second season, which I didn't think... I, I could see why they needed to work in plot terms. I think for those who have seen through and seen through to the Christmas special, and we were sort of operating on the assumption today that hopefully you all had, um, I think Richard Carlyle, Mary Souter, gets a bit of a rough trot. I think they have to make him a lot colder and crueler and more manipulative than he needs to be so that we don't hate Mary when she casts him aside. <laughs> and I also, I feel really sorry for Cousin Isabel. Um, I think they've made her a lot more bossy and meddlesome than she needs to be. She's, you know, a nurse. She's a woman of integrity. She has strong moral values. She's very useful in wartime. She doesn't shirk the dirty work, but she's irritating. She's always there suggesting that they could be doing more than they're doing. At the end of the... She wants them to turn Downton into a convalescent home at the end of the war. And we're invited to look at her like they do as... You've got to be kidding. You're thinking, what? 
Um, and I think maybe we see the perspective of um, Julian Fellows, also Baron Fellows of West Stafford, a little in his treatment of Isabel and her representation of the middle class. Mm. I really think she gets quite a rough trot in season two and um, is possibly a lot less sympathetic. I can see why that needs to happen in plot terms, but occasionally I just think, oh, leave her alone. But look, essentially those things are quibbles. I find this, the show incredibly addictive. I find the pace of its storytelling sweeps me along and it does what the best addictive series can do, which is it has you hanging out to find out what will happen next. And the payoffs with Downton are rapid and they're plentiful. Um, the Christmas special, for example. Christmas specials, from my understanding, Peter would probably know better than I do, my, my sense of them is they're Christmas Day fillers. That, that's that extra episode because heaps of people in the UK watch TV. It's cold, it's dark, everyone's inside, you've got a captive audience, but not much usually happens in plot terms in a Christmas special. So if you've missed it, you can usually go on to the next series of the show reasonably confident that you haven't missed a lot. That is not the case with Downton. I mean, to assume that nothing significant would happen in the Christmas special is a really big mistake. Bates is on trial for murder and convicted. Thomas steals Isis the dog in the hope of ingratiating himself with the Earl. The Earl learns of Mary's indiscretion with a Turkish diplomat. Richard Carlyle is sent packing. And finally, in the snow, Matthew proposes to Mary amid the snowflakes. So romantic. Um, it's a lot to pack into a Christmas special and it runs totally against the tradition, as I understand it, of Christmas specials. Goodness knows where it will pick up from after that and how much further along it will pick up, what will happen in Series 3. Will we get to see Sybil and Branson and the baby? Um, I don't know. I'm very excited to find out. The only thing I know about the next season is that Shirley MacLaine is playing Cora's mother, and I can't wait to see more. <laughs> Time for a few questions if, in case anyone wanted to ask Debbie or, or if Debbie's presentation brought up anything that you wanted to ask about this early in the piece. Well, we have some wiper frames which are working. Um, so just put the hand in on for a wiper frame. Um, I just wondered what you thought of Julian Fellows' Titanic. I haven't seen Titanic. Um, I, I wish I could say, I understand from what I've read about it that it's a very similar upstairs, downstairs set up and that it's four different perspectives on the event, but I haven't watched it. I found it a little bit boring. <laughs> it's been nicknamed uh, Drownton Abbey, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah. There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, because um, the boat sinks at the end of every episode and I'm like, <laughs> I saw the movie. I've seen the boat sink before, and so that's the spoiler. That's, that's yeah, but also that's the bells and whistles of it, isn't it? The boat sinks, and the boat sank pretty well in the movie. But you get a lot of that type of stuff. That's like, it's going to be an incredible journey. They say she's unsinkable, and she is. Blah blah blah. That type of thing. You go, oh exposition, look out, you're going to go down. Yeah. And a lot of sort of pluckiness in the face of of disaster. So uh, for me, I was a bit bored by it. Cause I I've seen it all before in the movie which I love. <laughs> and the movie's so iconic and so well done, I guess, that it's difficult to... Unless you're going to reinvent the Titanic story in a way that's particularly 
clever or unique than, you know, like if Baz Luhrmann was going to redo the Titanic or something, <laughs> which, you know, he may do, um, <laughs> then you wonder why they would take on this, yeah. essentially the same thing again. Um, I was going to ask a question about event television, because uh, about mm. um, what you mentioned, the Christmas specials, and mm. see if Peter could maybe, you know, shed some light on it. Because it's this, it's this tradition in the UK and shows like Doctor Who and shows that over here we, we watch from the UK will get, when we, buy, when we buy the DVDs, we'll get that extra one, that which, will, which will be the Christmas special. And like Debbie says, often it doesn't have, it's not canonical in a way because it doesn't move the story forward, but it's a, it has lots of guest stars and cameos. It depends on the show. Uh, being given a Christmas special is like a sort of a tap on the head from the network, the channel that has that show saying, you are one of our most treasured products on our channel. And so the shows that get Christmas specials are really big brands that have been really big for the channels they're on. So uh, Downton Abbey getting one was, was huge because it had been a huge show. Uh, shows like The Office, Gavin and Stacey, them getting Christmas specials is a real tap on the head from the channel saying, we believe in you as a huge brand. The other ones that get it, Doctor Who is massive. Wallace and Gromit was a huge Christmas episode. And The Soaps. And so, um, yeah, sometimes like The Office... The Office sort of wrapped it up, didn't they, in their mm. Christmas specials. Um, Gavin and Stacey, not a great deal happened, but the soaps, we say the biggest story of the year, the biggest moment of the year. Generally, Freestanders, it's split in two episodes. Um, so you'll have one at 6 o'clock and one at 7 o'clock and maybe a new Wallace and Gromit or a Doctor Who or something in between. Mm. And you will save the biggest moment of the year for that cliffhanger of that first episode. And so what you want is you have to watch EastEnders at Christmas. And I might add that we did get bigger numbers than Downton Abbey on Christmas Day. <laughs> they were very happy that EastEnders beat the poshos at Downton Abbey. So how many people watch EastEnders? 20-ish, 20 21, 21 million. That's, that's, what you, that's standard for your big Christmas show. So Wallace and Gromit, I think, was 22 or 23, and that won that year, 2008, I think. And EastEnders and Corrie, Coronation Street generally toss it up to see who wins it, who's got the best stories going into it. But, and Downton Abbey, 20 million. But things like Misfits, anyone ever watch Misfits, which yeah. was a Channel 4, had a Christmas special, and that was a real thing, a big thing for them, that Misfits, which was a pretty niche show, not yeah. hugely popular, but popular for its channel, um, was given a Christmas special. And I think they twisted it in a nice way. I think the story of their Christmas special was uh, a guy was pretending to be Jesus, and they had to kill Jesus. And that was a Misfits story. <laughs> I, we have to kill... So everyone in Downton Abbey's having Christmas, Christmas trees, snow, snow, snow. And they're going, right, got to kill Jesus then. Great, happy Christmas. So it's unlike Australia where Christmas falls in the non-ratings period. Mm. So therefore, all through December and January, you just see the, the worst rubbish on our TV screen. Christmas Day is the biggest television day of the year. Okay. And between Christmas and, like, the 2nd of January is the biggest television time of the year. Because everyone's on holidays, they're stuck inside, it's freezing cold and snowing, they don't want to go out and they sit and watch telly the whole time. It's sort of inconceivable to think of a network here, even with a show that they really value, doing a Christmas special that they're going to screen on Christmas Day, months after their show's finished and months before it might start. Yeah, you wouldn't have like a Pack to the Rafters Christmas Day special or something. Who's going to watch it? It's too nice. Yeah. Even the biggest shows in the country, yeah, it's fascinating. And it's impossible to imagine them funding it, right? Yeah. And to do it in a way that if you missed that episode, it wouldn't make any difference. Mm. Like, you could continue with the series, there would be nothing that happened in it that meant that if you were away on holidays, you know, you'd miss something important. Mm. Mm. Why don't they do a Misfits special? <laughs> well, 
Christmas no, in July. There's no event is the thing. There's no thing. Yeah, we... With, oh, we have the Australia Day special or something. With neighbours, <laughs> we used to aim to peak stories in winter. So the big, your big stories would climax around August or September. Um, September was good when Channel 10 had the footy because they could be promoing it. Yeah. Everyone's watching Channel 10, you got the footy on. So do promos for neighbours, you get big numbers. Um, but there you look to peak your stories and then sort of totter them down again and then peak them before you finish at Christmas to pick them up again after Christmas. But there was no official day where all our stories are going to detonate today. <laughs> detonate. Oh, That's that. great. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be pregnancy, a murder, a death, <laughs> something. All right. Well, uh, the next uh, person who's going to speak to is me. So, oh, thanks. <laughs> so, uh, I'm going to talk to you um, about Downton some more. And, and just to go back to that... Uh, Introductory mode that we've been that uh, that we've been favouring. We're assuming you've all seen all of Downton, uh, but it just helps to kind of frame the discussion, I think. So it follows the fortunes uh, and misfortunes of a large cast of characters, as Debbie explained, centering on the aristocratic Crawley family, headed up by the Earl and Countess of Grantham. So that was the first bit of confusion that their surname is in fact not Grantham. So when you start to try and unpack all of the, the names and places. You have to you keep, keep your wits about you. I realised when I was doing the research for tonight that I'd been watching it without paying attention really to anything, you know, to any of the details, and it had just been sort of washing over me like this sort of treacly, you know, pudding. Um, so, and they're three beautiful daughters. The Dowager Countess, uh, who is the wisecracking old lady, and the mostly dutiful servants, who make their lives a fairly endless series of lavish meals, sitting about in drawing rooms and the occasional burst of misbehaviour and excitement. In the tradition of shows before it, like Upstairs and Down Upstairs Downstairs, Downton Abbey revels in the interplay between the haves and the have-nots, uh, sometimes depicting them in stark opposition, but other times at pains to show how very alike they are. I feel like that's a, that's a constant trope throughout the show. Uh, but always delighting in the frisson of a world that has an entire world built underneath it, or depending on your view on top of it. So I'm going to talk about why I, I love Downton Abbey, um, how much fun it can be, and why I think it's a feminist show, and, and what I think also that its political limitations are. People often ask me what I think of, of pop culture uh, artefacts because they want to get a kind of predictable angry feminist response. <laughs> they sort of want me to hulk out on cue. Um, so it's like, sometimes it's like being the feminist police and people report crimes against <laughs> women to you and they hope you can do something about it. So it'll be, you know, do, do you see the ad for such and such? You should write an article about it. Or um, have you seen HBO Girls yet? Or have you seen Bridesmaids? It's really great. You know, you should do a panel about it. Um, and so people are sometimes surprised if I don't like something that they think is really soundly feminist or they're really upset if I love something that they find really appallingly sexist. Um, and I try and explain that I don't actually consume art based on its feminist credentials. I don't do the Bechdel test on movies before I watch, before I watch them. Um, uh, but every now and then there's something that is fun and thrilling and sweet and that also has some interesting things to say about gender, and I think Downton is one of those, one of those shows. So 
That said, uh, there are some political dimensions to the show that make me deeply uncomfortable. <laughs> Uh, because it's a fictional drama set in a non-fictional time, the, uh, you know, so unlike shows like The Foresight Saga or, you know, the, the, a lot of those Sunday night ABC adaptations, this isn't from a source text in the Victorian era. Um, this is someone right now creating this world um, from, from 2011 with the benefit of, of everything that we know now and creating this world, which is why it can be so feminist. You know, this is one, one reason why it can have all of these kind of really strong um, gender politics. Um, but the class politics is still firmly in the Victorian era, and that's because Julian Fellows is a, is a high Tory. So um, I wanted to talk about, he's just been made a, a peer uh, by David Cameron. Um, and so, and, and also for anyone who didn't know, he made Gosford Park the film. Uh, so that can kind of contextualise it for you. He's pretty obsessed with the aristocracy, um, but not of it himself. So there's a kind of uh, tension there, I think. So it's set in the Edwardian period in rural England. It can feel quite real, despite the fact that the storylines are very melodramatic. So the Titanic really sinks in the show and World War I really breaks out. Uh, people travel to London by train. <laughs> so you get this sense of of verisimilitude, where it feels almost as though this is what life was really like then, um, until, you know, the Lord goes downstairs <laughs> to say to everyone, how are you feeling, you know? <laughs> um, I'm really worried about this court case that you're in, <laughs> where you're being charged with murder. I'll send my lawyer down to... You know, that's where things kind of fall apart. So, um, the famously rigid... British class system is obviously one of the main characters of Downton Abbey, but by making it a part of the structure of the story instead of a feature within it, it almost becomes invisible. And that's something about it that I find, um, it's, it's so obvious that it almost disappears. Does that make sense? Mm. Um, and because the creator, Julian Fellows, is so clearly in love with the aristocracy, his Lord Grantham could hardly be more caring and kind or more unrealistic <laughs> as a guy uh, in charge of a few dozen servants, um, uh, over whom he, he rules incredibly benevolently and knows every intimate detail of their romantic <laughs> lives and really just wants them to be happy, you know. Um, it's, it's, I find it slight, slightly grating. But uh, Fellows um, has created here a love letter to noblesse oblige. This is what I think is the important thing. His dearly held belief that rich people, if they left alone to just with their money, um, <laughs> they will not only be really nice to everyone, but that they will responsibly wield power and be thoughtful custodians of that wealth. Um, and in her Guardian piece, Tanya Gold put it really beautifully. She said, in Downton Abbey, the class system exists for the benefit of those at the bottom. Uh, as illustrated in the touching moment when Lord Grantham explains to, to Matthew, or teaches Matthew, rather, that his new valet uh, it, it has a purpose in life, and that purpose is to select the correct clothing for Matthew, um, and that if he continues to uh, disrupt his valet or not value what, what the valet does, he's actually... Um, He's actually being disrespectful of this man's choice to be a really, really, you know, to be really good at his job. 
So Matthew then obliges the valet by complimenting him on a job well done and, uh, and stops insisting on dressing himself <laughs> and takes his first steps to becoming uh, a ruling class knob, actually. But, <laughs> but the more legitimate heir to, down t to, uh, you know, heir, um, to the earldom of Grantham, have I got that right? So, uh, but also the working class are also mostly very lovely and wonderful in Downton as well, um, with the exception of Tom and O'Brien. And that's a very poignant scene when O'Brien is there smoking by herself because she doesn't have Tom with her. Um, they're basically the Boris and Natasha of the show, <laughs> who kind of almost, uh, you know, hide behind doors and, and, and shadows, you know, waiting to trip someone over. Um, and O'Brien's very bereft without Tom there. It's sort of, yeah, she becomes a little bit... Um, you realise how dependent her character is on that interplay with her and Tom. Um, and also the burgeoning popularity, again, historically accurate, of Marxist revolution is represented at Downton in the form of an Irish guy who hates the English <laughs> and is inspired by the Russians <laughs> while he's driving the English around in their, in their cars. Um, to become, I think, first a journalist and then a politician. So there's, there's that kind of cliche of the Fenian or the, you know, the person who, um, who is young and idealistic, and so he represents all of the people that, that the British have wronged, really. So it, the show's pretty right-wing <laughs> when you get down to it, but the gender stuff is much more interesting. Um, as... I'm sure we all know, the entire dramatic momentum of the show comes from the very real problem of hereditary peerage. So Mary, uh, the beloved eldest child, becomes a little bit useless uh, when it becomes clear that she can't in inherit the estate from her father um, and his rich mother because the person she was to marry has disappeared on the Titanic or presumed dead on the Titanic. Um, she can't even inherit the huge wealth that her mother brought into the marriage. So you can see the, the kind of ways in which Julian Fellows is trying to illustrate just how unfair it is. Uh, Mary's job is to marry the heir of Grantham, whether it's her cousin or not, whether she loves him or not, whether she has the hots for a Turkish guy or not. Uh, and this plight should endear us to Mary, but initially she's quite hard to like Mary. She's, she's kind of... she's. Um, you know, eventually I warmed up to her, but she, for a while there, she's kind of an a-hole to everyone. Um, she, only later do you get that really useful context that she starts to push back against and say, I am defined by my marriageability. Even within this family, I'm only valued for what I can secure for the family in terms of wealth. Uh, and that's why I'm tetchy all the time. Uh, and that's where you start to kind of get on board with Mary. And uh, besides, let's face it, sometimes Edith deserves it. Um, <laughs> so we've established that Mary's life is severely circumscribed by the sexist laws around the inheritance of wealth and property and title. But this situation also pretty much stinks for Edith and Sybil um, as well, who are expected to marry themselves off for even less important reasons. They just have to get married because it's expected. Cora, their mother, uh, seems to have married as a result of a complex financial negotiation rather than romance, um, despite now being in a loving relationship with her husband. Uh, and not to mention the Dowager Countess, uh, who, despite being clearly the most powerful person in this family and possibly this district, 
is only informally the leader. She she can only ever play the role of a kind of puppet master. Um, and you get this you, you get the strong impression that that is part of why she's so salty and and you know going off at everyone all the time because it's a way of asserting her, her authority and power. Um, but in all this, it's also worth thinking about what it means for Matthew. Matthew Crowley's situation is every bit as unfair as Mary's, I think. Because of the patriarchal laws and conventions around title and peerage, he's told that not only must he uproot his life, cease his pursuit of his chosen career, and move in with the strangers at Downton Abbey, he's also to marry their eldest daughter so that the money can stay where it belongs. This is all despite the fact that he seemed perfectly happy before and that Mary is pretty awful to him. But of course, uh, as Debbie pointed out, Isabel is the middle class in this show and Matthew is us, I think. He resists uh, for a while but not only falls in love with Mary eventually but is utterly seduced by the beauty and opulence and glamour of life at Downton. And quite sweetly, I think, by the appeal of the father figure that Lord Grantham becomes to him. Uh, it's another way for fellows to signal to us that all is as it should be and the aristocracy will win out in the end because it always does and, and it always should. It's part of the naturalism of the show that I think is really, really important. And I think this show is very naturalistic as opposed to the majority of popular shows at the moment are realistic. You know, it shows a kind of... It takes something that is unnatural and makes it seem like the most natural thing in the world rather than other shows, I think, are going for an incredibly realistic, critical approach by forcing us to see something it, as it really is. And I think Danton does the opposite, <laughs> um, which is why it's so nice. Um, so it's part of the naturalism of the show, depicting class as a natural order that's fundamental to humanity rather than a completely unfair construct. On the other hand, Fellows is a Tory who sees gender as a construct that is unfair in its limitation and punishment of women, and he demonstrates that the patriarchy is bad for everyone by having so many characters, both male and female, fall foul of it, and that endears him to me a great deal, despite how different our beliefs may be. <laughs> Uh, I read recently that Fellows is married to a woman who is basically in the same predicament as Mary Crawley. Does anyone know this? His, but, you know, in 2012. <laughs> um, his wife, Emma Kitchener Fellows, and yes, it's the same Kitcheners, uh, was, uh, I'm not kidding, a lady-in-waiting to mm. Princess Michael of Kent. Mm. What even is? <laughs> what? what is a lady-in-waiting? Surely doesn't get things for her. Anyway, um, to Princess Michael of Kent, and she can't inherit her family's estate because the Earl, the Earl doesn't have a male heir, only her. So because of her, because of the fact that she's a woman, she is, is preventing her family in the year 2012 <laughs> from inheriting a uh, peerage and an estate and, and a title. So um, this is one of those times when I can't decide whether to be outraged that a woman can't inherit peerage or just be outraged that peerage still exists <laughs> and it's inherited at all. Um, like having to protest that women should be able to fight in wars that you're trying to stop, you know, some of those moments you think, whoa, what's going on? Uh, but in the show, World War I provides more opportunities for us to see class and gender at play on the fates of the characters. Matthew gets to be an officer, which still uh, is tough 
but I imagine has a fair bit to do with why he makes it home. Tom goes in with a negligible amount of social capital and comes home with rather a lot more. Uh, and if the World War I poets are to be believed, he probably had a pretty good time while he was away. Um, Isabel becomes super middle class during World War I. She takes on this role of personifying the middle class by saying, I'll, I'll get some things done, you know, I'll, mm. I'll put up a, I'll, I'll make a charity auction and I'll, you know, organise people and I'll, you know, um, raise awareness. And so she kind of plays this role, which, as you say, is very unfairly painted, I think, by Julian Fellows and, and by the creators of the show, um, as being very female, very, you know, hand-wringing and faffing around and very irritating, like, say. Um... Sybil also gets a bit more serious during World War One, where she uh, she decides that donning a pantsuit might be, you know, uh, the least she could do, and finds that being a nurse allows her freedoms and satisfaction that she never experienced in her life before. So, I find reading Downton in terms of gender interesting because I think it has a really obvious feminist sensibility. The three daughters are each constrained and empowered by their gender roles at different times. And we get the impression that Cora has taught them well that being a woman uh, is, is hard but has its own unique power to wield over certain situations. Uh, Cora's also pretty tough in her dealings with her mother-in-law. Imagine growing up, like she's going through a marriage with, with her husband and your mother-in-law is Maggie Smith just barking things at you <laughs> all the time about how you did the flowers wrong, you know. Um, she, uh, I think she keeps it together pretty well. She, uh, the, the Dowager Countess herself is an, is an amazing tour de force and I, I scarcely need to say that she is, um, she's one of the most enjoyable things about the show. Her entire character seems to consist of hilariously cutting one-liners um, and the occasional surprising moment of sweetness, which is why I think we keep coming back for more with her. She seems very fair-minded on occasion. Uh, I see her as a linchpin of the cast, and, and so therefore she's a, a pivot around which all of the other characters turn in a way, um, and, and she's a very strong female character. So, and that's just the women upstairs. Downstairs we have Mrs Hughes, Anna Bates, Anna Bates, <laughs> uh, Mrs Patmore, Daisy, and poor old O'Brien to ponder over, not to mention some great side storylines for Ethel, Gwen and the first Mrs. Bates. The first Mrs. Bates, amazing, amazing character in terms of, um, you know, not in terms of likability, but in terms of, you know, um, creating drama. Anna is a great example of a character who, who I think is strong and ethical within the limitations that have been placed on her. Um, another character who we're invited to really strongly identify with. Um, she faces choices that challenge her goodness. Uh, will she look out for mates even if it means risking her job? Will she stick with Bates even if it means compromising her socially? Will she keep calling him Mr Bates even after they've had sex? <laughs> <laughs> yes, she will. Uh, so without being too obvious about it, I like that it's a show that centres so, uh, so deliberately uh, and largely on women's lives with a majority of female characters um, and, the, and the women are certainly the ones who matter most to the story. Uh, they get to exercise real agency and, in some cases, behave very badly. And I like that about Downton. It's, it's thoroughly enjoyable in a way that TV um, hardly ever is anymore. So there's equal opportunity silly, silliness. 
some very engaging storylines and some crazily beautiful gowns, which uh, Mel's going to take us through later. Uh, so finally, I just wanted to confess that it took me a little while to warm to Downton, that in, in the beginning, I just, I, I would yell things at the television, but they weren't at the characters, they were at, at the makers of the show. You know, I'd be like, oh, come on, you know, she's American, she has ideas, we get it, you know. Um, <laughs> but then I realised that if you just yelled at the characters and just immersed yourself in it like a pantomime and you just went like, you know, behind you and... Go, tell him what you think, you know. Um, it could be, um, you know, so much more enjoyable. And, of course, there's always Maggie Smith chewing up the scenery. So uh, that's why I love Downton Abbey. Um, and that's all. Thanks. So there's a couple of minutes of questions as well, um, if anyone had any. Yeah, I, I think... Um your identification of Fellows and his sympathies is, is spot on. Mm. Because I think one of the things about the upstairs, downstairs, they mirror each other, but we're supposed to look at the, at the Crawley family and say, gosh, it's really hard for them too. You know, these poor women, they've got terrible things to do as well. They've got great clothes and they're, they're <laughs> eating really well and they're living this nice life, but God, how constraining. You know, we feel really sympathetic for Mary's, about Mary's position. Mm. It's like, it, it seems, incredibly unfair that none of the daughters can inherit the estate that they have to marry. It's very Jane <laughs> And Austen. then you're like, it's an estate. You know, like, that's yeah. unfair that they have that. You know, that's the thing. You kind of, yeah, it makes you really cool. But it is that, that, you know, the constraints on the upper class as well. They have mm. their duties and responsibilities and life isn't easy. <laughs> and the, I think the, the uh, comparison of what happens to Mary and what happens to Ethel, who both have these sort of ill-advised sexual encounters... And mm. what happens to one because she's upper class and what happens to the other because she's working class, I think is pretty dramatic, the difference. I mean, it's still very bad for Mary in terms of her, in terms of the social cost, but it's not a kind of existential cost. She doesn't end up, you know, hungry and, and starving and living in a slum, you know, like Ethel seems Poor to. Ethel. Yeah. Yeah. Although, I mean, the mind boggles when you think what had happened if she'd gotten pregnant. Mary had gotten pregnant. If Mary had gotten mm. pregnant. Sent away. Yeah. To Holiday a sanitarium. Married to an Italian. <laughs> you can <laughs> always find an Italian. Visiting grandmama in New York. Yeah. yeah. Visiting Cora's mother in well, America. Well, in the end, that seemed... And which we now know is Shirley MacLaine, which seems just fabulous. <laughs> like, <laughs> they would send Mary off in disgrace to hang out with Shirley MacLaine <laughs> in New York for a while. You know, it just seems like Taking not a, a solution to, <laughs> to calming Mary down, but... was a really sexist character and how he belittles Sybil and it was just like this really passionate hate towards him for it and I noticed mm. online that there was the same kind of outrage and I just kind of wondered what you thought as a you know someone who's a feminist writer yeah. you thought about that exchange and, and whether you think he's sexist what did he say to her he says something like um that she um you know just all that she does as a nurse is serve hot drinks to Randy officers and then they were kind of went on to say that then she takes, you know, he takes her from this world so that he can live his political dream and ignores her ideals. And it, it, 
it was just really interesting to see all this really hatred towards him for his treatment of civil rights. Mm. So. Yeah, right. He's he's because he's a real character apart, isn't he, Branson? Like he he doesn't have he's not friends with anyone else who works mm. there, and so he's even Tom and O'Brien have friends, you mm. know, and Branson has none. Um, and yeah. yeah, so he's but I think again, it's like Fellows has made him this really creepy kind of outcast. You know, he just sort of froths at the mouth about the mm -hmm. Russian Revolution and how great it was. And that and scene where he tries to dump the, the crazy, like... <laughs> you think he's going to murder, yeah. yeah. over the general's head and... Um, yeah, I don't know. I've, I've read a lot that said that there wasn't much chemistry between Sybil and Branson and that their interminable garage dates just kept on going <laughs> on and on. I and did think it was a bit much. Peter, weren't you saying that they sort of skipped the part where they fell in love? Yeah, it sort of felt as if they, they went, oh, they're going to fall in love, they're going to fall in love, mm. and then they were in love. And they said, well, when... When did, did they happen? fall in love? When was the moment when they fell in love? I also think they do that with Anna and Bates in the first series, re-watching it. Yeah. Uh, all of a sudden, they're in love. And it's, oh, oh, you were... It was only a bit of flirtiness last episode, but now you're in love and I missed that <laughs> moment where, oh, now they're in love. You know, you get that moment in, in Pride and Prejudice, you get the moment where they're in love. Yeah. You didn't really get that moment. But I, I think the Bates... The, the Bates, the Branson... I think we have to believe that... He, I think that, we, that he loves her, genuinely loves yeah. her, and she genuinely loves him. Because otherwise that story falls apart. That, that, that has to be a love story, and they don't have the best chemistry. It's true. But we don't know, because they, no one kisses on this show. No, have kisses, you noticed? Right. It's, really, it's like a Bollywood movie. But Mary and Matthew have got chemistry. Mary and Matthew have got chemistry, that's true, and they don't kiss until the... Uh, oh, no, no, they don't they kiss, kiss along the way. The Yes, they, and they kiss in the dance and where Lavinia sees them and that kind of thing. So they have a few stolen kisses along the way. Mm -hmm. So you get to see that chemistry kind of and unfold. I, I think Edith and the car driving man have nice little chemistry between them. You know, ruddy car driving man. Yeah. Oh, the farmer. <laughs> the farmer no, 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 not the farmer. In the first series. The, oh, no. Oh, oh, sorry. I'm going to take so you out for a drive oh, in no. Rolls Royce. <laughs> he's, he's, he's like an old creep. That he's lovely. <laughs> He's, he's the worst. He's, he's like 40 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Nah. He's, he's like, sweet. I'm sorry I couldn't come shooting. I, my arm doesn't work. I think he's sweet. <laughs> We're supposed to think he might be the best she can do. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's pretty clear that her parents think that, you know, she'll, <laughs> she'll be on the shelf if she doesn't go for him. Also, just on the thing with um, Branson, I we have an Irish friend who absolutely loathes the program. Mm. thinks it's hideous and all these, you know, English upper-class knobs swanning around that he's not interested in. But his comment on it was, there is no way that a family like this would ever have had an Irish chauffeur <laughs> because to them it would have been like having a Nazi in the garage. <laughs> <laughs> See, and also I don't know what, if Branson hates the English so much, why is he working, why is yeah. he on a stage yeah. in the middle of the countryside? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so maybe my view, my view of whether or not Branson is a sexist was just more kind of lost in my general view that he wasn't a great character. Like, he wasn't very well drawn. It was kind of like, he's the revolutionary, he will end, he's the progenitor of the IRA, you know, he hates the English. And then you're kind of left to ponder mm. what he's doing there. But I think Peter's right. You don't see the development no. of the relationship. You know that he's resentful of her position. And of the fact that she's the idle rich. And then he's awful about when she becomes the nurse's aide and won't take that seriously either. But you kind of don't see a lot I, I think if we them. had have seen them, if we really had believed in that love and seen that he saw a better life for her and meant it, then that story would have meant a lot more to us. 
that mm. is he when yeah. when she ran off to Ireland with him if we were going go Sybil go because yeah mm. you might not have all this state but you'll have love and you'll have passion you'll have excitement and and that's what life's all about yeah if we had to believe that and that's a what's well, a shortcoming of the probably the performer but also the storytelling I think mm. I like season one Branson I liked how he saved Sybil from the, yeah, nice. the election yeah. and, and he... He didn't want her to go either. That's right. And, and that he sort of gave her some revolutionary ideas, sort of edged her, edged her towards <laughs> that um, hilarious dress <laughs> that she wears. Um, and then that scene where you actually see him peeping in the window as she models the dress. <laughs> that was real I'm so proud of her culottes. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, but season two, like he just hangs around moping that the Tsar got killed. Yeah, yeah I think I know. It seems, a little, and and Sybil also isn't a great character. I don't think. Like I think no. she's she's sort of like a, a a cardboard cut out of the feminist. You know, she's like the early suffragette, and um and she's incredibly beautiful. But I don't know. She's a great actor, um. But or maybe she's just not given enough to work with. So yeah, the whole Sybil Branson thing, I was kind of like, ah, off they go. You know. I wasn't really, really engaged by either of them. You I know. see Branson a bit like um, Joan's husband on Mad Men, Rapey Gumfingers. <laughs> oh. How he, he nicks off to Vietnam and everyone's like, get killed, get killed. <laughs> <laughs> like, I sort of see a little bit of the same with Branson. I sort of, everyone's going to be like, you know, get killed in the, in the troubles. Come in on. The, and then in the Easter can, Rising. Yeah, that's right. And then, All right, yeah. I think we should keep moving. <laughs> On from Get Killed. No, nobody start that as a chant. Um, and I'll introduce Mel Campbell, who's going to talk to you about the fashions of downtown. We're really looking forward to this presentation. So oh. please welcome Mel Campbell. Thanks, everyone. I've got a PowerPoint presentation because you can't have a costume drama without the costumes, clearly. And uh, one of the most intriguing things about the costumes in Downton Abbey is that, um, like Karen was saying, the tension between realism and naturalism, um, the costumes are meant to put you in the era and make you feel that it's authentic, that this kind of stuff could have actually happened. And so a lot of it is to do with uh, screen accuracy, but there's become a sort of a, a sport um, trying to, to show that certain things are... Uh, anachronistic in these kinds of dramas. They, they have done it a lot with um, The Hour, which was a British show set in 1956 in London at the BBC, um, kind of going, well, they wouldn't have said that. They wouldn't have worn that. And, and you're thinking, it's, it's a fictional show. Mm. Why do you even care? But um, for the political project of Downton that, that Karen's talked about, it, it is important that we feel that we are there but that we are somehow able to bring our contemporary values across. And for a costume designer, it's challenging as well because you want to um, make people feel like they're immersed in there, but you also want to use the costumes to differentiate character, to show the passage of time, which Downton does very, very quickly. Um, it starts in 1912. We finish in 1920, so we've got eight years in only... So how many episodes have there been? There was... Um, Seven, six, or seven, six yeah. or seven, yeah, and seven then and, and then the Christmas special, yeah. um, and that's that's a lot of sort of costumes to get through. So um, let's see if this works. Yes, okay. First of all, um, the silhouettes are one of the most important things. So um, Susanna Buxton, who's been the costume designer at Downton Abbey in the last the first two seasons. She said that it's silhouette that differentiates, particularly in season two, but also silhouette is one of the things that creates a sense of place. So um, 
corsets, clearly. Oh, it's a corset drama. And in the genre of corset drama in Hollywood and in, in TV, you always hear the actresses whinging, oh, it was so hard to wear a corset, oh, I couldn't eat anything, I couldn't breathe, blah, 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 you know. Oh, now I know how they all felt, which is ridiculous because how they felt in the day was totally not how a contemporary person who puts on a corset after having never worn one in their lives feels. Um, kids started wearing corsets when they were very small. Um, they were just like slowly laced in a little bit tighter and they were never really, really tight laced in the way that um, is almost a fetish subculture these days. The, the wasp waist was only ever worn by an absolute minority of really hardcore and often sexually fetishised people. Um, but people felt like a corset held them together. It was a socially respectable garment and it created your sense that you were a social actor. So the, the picture that I've got up here is um, an old style corset in this picture is uh, a Victorian corset. So something that would have been worn from say the 1840s through to about the late 1880s. And then in the 1890s, in came the supposed health corsets or the, the S-Bend corsets, which had a straight front, as you can see, and they, they made your, your hips force back and your back sort of arch, and that was deemed to be a very elegant turn, um, tournure, they refer to it, um, turnout. And uh, that was the, the high Edwardian period. So um, when you see um, Violet, the dowager um, countess, she's got that same turnout. She's got her sort of bosom um, thrusting into the front and then she's got the sort of arched back. Um, so you can see that she's already being shown to be a person who's of a previous generation. She's an older lady and um, this is her iconic look obviously that everyone identifies with her. Um, but this is the corset that Mary and her sisters would have been wearing, which um, was, uh, it was known as the Diana ideal as opposed to the Venus ideal of the previous generation. It's a youthful and more athletic look. And as you can see, it wasn't really, um, it didn't go over the boobs and it was quite low. Of course, the, the bones don't go very much further than the hips, so you can totally sit down at it. It's not like, you know, you have to sort of lie on the floor or anything. Um, here you can see... Um, Anna is lacing up Mary's corset. Mary is wearing a, a weird sort of corset that half goes over her bosom, but you can see that she's wearing a shift underneath, which is what everyone used to do. There's also a scene later in season one where Sybil's like, oh, Anna, can you loosen my corset? I'm a feminist and I don't like corsets, um, which is, again, the anachronism of our, our particular era speaking through into the past there. But you can, you can see vaguely the silhouette that the corset uh, had. And then in this photo of... Um, uh, of Isabel, you can see the ridge that the corset creates along the back of her dress. So corsets went up much higher than a bra would go these days. They, they went right over your shoulder blades. And so they, they created a very rigid silhouette there. Um, and you can see Mrs Patmore, even though she's a downstairs lady, she's in a corset too. Everyone wore corsets. It wasn't just something that upstairs people did. It was a downstairs thing too because you felt like you were fully dressed when you were wearing a corset. And you can see that even though Mrs Patmore doesn't have the ideal body of the, these times, she's still wearing a corset and she looks trim, you know, she looks pretty good. This is one of the few pictures I could find where she's not actually got her apron over the top hiding the damn dress. Um, and now the, the collars, the stiff collars are part of um, almost the male equivalent for the, the male characters is what gives them that, that stiff, upstanding look. Collars were not attached to the shirts. They were separate, and you basically stuck them on with studs, um, usually two studs in the front and one stud in the back, and you 
Um, also uh, had like fake shirt fronts and fake color, um, fake cuffs sometimes. So you can sort of see in uh, Warner Brothers cartoons and such, uh, sometimes that's played for last. This is an old music hall gag where like your, your um, dickie in the front comes flapping up, your, your cuffs come off, your collar comes undone. It's, it's played for comedy because everyone knew what it was like to have these detachable um, garments. So in this picture you can see Matthew's shirt, his actual shirt underneath the collar and you can see the collar on the top. Um, and then you can see um, Lord Grantham in his, his dickie. You can see that it's just basically buttons on around the neck. And then he will have his waistcoat over the top covering it. Okay, but then costume also acts to differentiate characters. So it, let's think of, of TV as pageantry as well. Um, it, it's not necessarily strictly uh, naturalistic. You also have to use the costume to differentiate between the characters. So. Can you even tell who's who in this picture? This is um, most of the young female cast of season two in a, a pictorial that they did for Marie Claire magazine. Um, left to right, we've got um, Jane, the creepy housemate, Ethel, the sassy housemate, <laughs> Sybil, um, what's her name, Edith? I always forget Edith, which is terrible because everyone forgets Edith. Um, then you've got Lavinia in her Olivia Newton-John pants. <laughs> you've got Anna, then you've got Mary, and on the far right you have Daisy. And, uh, and when you see the, the actors in these kinds of contemporary spreads, you realise what an achievement the costumes are, that, that it's not naturalistic at all. It's, it's a, a very artificial thing that drags you back into the past. This is one that I especially thought was hilarious with Matthew and... Oh, hang on, where am I? With, uh, with Matthew and Mary, um, looking like a pair of, of horrible vampires or something. <laughs> 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 um, and you can tell that basically that this is not, this is a, a contemporary version of costume. The actors are just basically dummies that, that get overlaid with the, the, tro the tropes of their characters. So let's have a look at some of the ways that, that Buxton um, created the characters. So Violet, obviously her name has a purple tone to it, so apart from her iconic purple outfit, Notice that she's always wearing kind of shades of plum and deep purple, these sorts of things. You're, you're saying this is her, this is what she wears. Mary always wears lots of dark reds and lots of browns. Um, the, and especially she does this. She also wears also other colours, but she tends to wear the reds in very important moments for her character. So the bottom in the middle there is the dress that she wears when Mr Pamuk seduces her in... Uh, in series one. Um, on the, the bottom left, that's the, the outfit that she wears when she begs Matthew not to go away to the war again. Um, top left is when she begs Richard Carlyle not to um, put out the story about Mr Pamuk in the papers. And then on the top right, you've got the, uh, the outfit that she wears in the Christmas special in the climactic proposal scene. And it's no accident, of course, that she's flanked by Sir Richard and by Matthew there. And look at Matthew's tie is echoing hers to show that they belong together. Um, Sybil, uh, sorry, um, <laughs> I can't help it. Um, Ethel, Ethel, my Ethel. I can't get her name right. Edith. Edith. Yep. Edith. Poor Edith. She always seems to wear these kind of peachy, oh no, it's terrible, I'm wearing the same colour as her too. Um, she wears these kind of peachy, apricotty, orangey tones all the time and that's Similarly, to show that she's uh, a particular character, when you see these, these colours on screen, you know, oh, there's 
Edith. And um, <laughs> again, these, these are key moments for her character. Um, third from the left there, that's when she goes to Sir Anthony Deadarm Strallen and, um, and says, well, anyone who calls me lovely, I I'm not going to give up on them. Uh, and then uh, the, the bottom in the middle is when Sir Anthony um, drops in and says, would you like to go for a spin in my Rolls Royce? Would I? So that's, these, these are her kind of key outfits. But it's interesting to note, and I'll get to this in a little bit, that um, the one that she's wearing in the top right is actually um, Sybil wore that in season one. Th that's a still from season two, but Sybil had the exact same blouse in season one. They did this a lot in the movie Little Women, which I liked too, because they showed that these characters would actually share their wardrobe around. And I liked that they, they said, oh, there's Edith going, oh, that blouse of Sybil's. She's wearing her nurse's uniform. She won't want to wear that. Now I'm, I'm just going to steal that and wear it. Um, and this is basically the, the colour scheme. I haven't done it with Sybil because you, you get the, the sort of... Uh, the same view, but Sybil has blues and, and greys. They're her signature colours. So here you can see, um, this is from episode two of season one. Here you can see the three sisters wearing pretty much their signature colour schemes. And look how similar the sort of the, the vague cuts and the stance that they have in this photo is. And look at this episode. Um, this is episode two, I think, where the, the gross... Um, the gross duke who's having it off with Thomas um, comes to visit... Uh, that's him on the far left. And see how the, the different um, colours of purple that they're wearing show that they're all sort of part of the same family, that these are all the, the, um, the Crawley women. Okay, so another thing that I find interesting about Downton Abbey is, as we, we've seen lots of um, evidence of, it's all about changing your outfit according to what is appropriate. Um, but that doesn't only apply to the upstairs people, it also applies to the downstairs people. So... The, the maids, obviously, have got their daytime dress, which you can see on the right there, and then they've got their fancy frock that they uh, use to serve dinner in and, uh, and all sorts of things. So it's, it's even the people downstairs. You can also see, I haven't got a picture of it, but the footmen have got their sort of their casual jacket, and then they've got their fancy jacket that they use to serve at table. Um, and then when you see Anna and Bates out of, uh, out of uniform... They, they look pretty good. I mean, they don't look shabby or povo. Um, historically, servants did actually get a lot of um, cast-off clothing from their um, employers, but they didn't always wear it. Sometimes they sold it on the second-hand clothing market, um, but servants were often some of the best-dressed uh, people in England um, because they had access to such a, a terrific pool of great clothes. And you see they, they look pretty nice. I think that Bates scrubs up quite well. And, of course... Uh, here's their marriage outfit. Um, notice how she, she had a jacket on when she was actually um, going in, but obviously she's taken it off because we think of white as the colour of marriage. So, oh, and speaking of marriage, uh, where are we? Hello? Oh, this is the, the sad wedding of Daisy and William. Um, Daisy never, ever wears this outfit again after her wedding. It, maybe she's borrowed it from someone else. And the way that she's done her hair is completely unlike the way she does her mm -hmm. hair usually. And partly that's to show that, that this is a very fancy occasion for her, but partly it's also a character to show that this wedding, Daisy feels, is not mm. something that she would do. It feels out of character for her and she's unwilling to do it and feels like she's being bullied into it, basically. But the, the very pale colours, again, show that this is a wedding. Even poor old William's um, sort of bed linen. OK, and now I love the country sport aspect of Downton Abbey. This is um, Mary's 
wonderful riding habit. There's another photo that I haven't got in there which shows that the habit actually drags halfway down the horse. It's almost, it's almost dragging along the ground. It's a very long dress because uh, habits in these days, side saddle, were, were all about um, basically create, creating like a blanket effect over your nasty female legs. Um, but it's interesting the way that the, um, the time has its effect on the outfits that they wear. This is a very high Edwardian outfit worn in 1912. Oh, I, I just like this picture of um, the kind of young, <laughs> sporty Matthew in his Norfolk jacket and, uh, and Lord Grantham in his uh, overcoat and tweeds. Tweeds get worn a lot. Um, here's Mary. This is uh, season two. She's got her sort of uh, tweedy outfit on. And poor old Sir Richard has had his tweeds made in London and they're too hot. He's like, oh, they were too hot. And, and she's like, wow, you, you must dress properly. And, and she's just such a bitch to him. And I don't even know why he bothers sticking around. But um, So that's halfway through season two. But then by the Christmas special, she's wearing this very 1920s kind of outfit. Um, poor old Sir Richard doesn't seem to have learned from his previous experience with the, the two warm tweeds. Um, and also you can see the 1920s creeping up in Lavinia's outfit. Lavinia is presented as being on the absolute cutting edge of fashion. Um, this is actually, the dress that she's wearing was found in pieces in a costume house. It was an original 1920s dress and it's been sort of put back together again and they've used a little bit of creative licence because this takes place in 1918, I think, uh, this scene. And that dress that Mary's wearing was also... Um, found in very bad condition. It's an original dress, but they had to create a special slip for her to wear underneath it, otherwise it would be completely see-through because it's pretty much just lace. But the, the, the clever thing about the second season is the gradual way that you see time creeping up. And, uh, and here we go, we've got Daisy. This is a dress that she wears a lot in the second season. And look on the far right, you can see how short the dress is. Things are getting very much um, shorter and more modern as the, as the series goes on. Oh, and this is my favourite part. Um, you might have this idea that they've got all the dresses from Downton from scratch, but surprisingly few of them they have. Maybe one in three costumes were made specifically for the show. Obviously, the budget for a, a dramatic, um, you know, huge ensemble cast like this would be massive. And there's just no way, even though Downton, I think, was the most expensive um, TV show, um, British TV show, it just, they just can't handled it, and especially because some of the costumes have to be so opulent, um, the, the pre-war evening gowns especially. So what they've done is they've gone to um, costume rental places, uh, some in London, some in Madrid and some in Paris to get all the different things. Sometimes Susanna Buxton has actually got a, a dress from a costume place and she's added extra trim, she's replaced the sleeves, she's added uh, little bits and pieces here and there. So. Um, here are some of the other places that the Downton costumes have been seen. So um, this dress that Mary wore in season one uh, was in the movie Finding Neverland. Edith's garden party dress um, was in a, a version of A Room with the View that happened in 2007. You can see that they've replaced the, uh, the, the belt. They, they've put a sort of pale pink belt on for Edith. And they, they reused their own costumes. So. Um, you can, you can imagine that Cora, if she saw Rosamond, hey, that was my dress from a few years ago. What are, what are you doing wearing that? And Rosamond's, oh, I don't know. You know. Um, but they're, they're banking on the fact that no one will remember Cora having worn that very early in season one. I think that's the episode where Matthew first comes over for dinner, which explains her distrustful look. <laughs> uh, and season two, that's when um, 
Rosamond comes uh, for, I think it might even be the Christmas special, she comes over for the uh, servant's ball and gets totally pooned by um, her horrible maid uh, and, and that, that creepy dude who keeps on making lewd remarks. Even the famous uh, outfit by Maggie Smith has, um, has been worn before. So obviously they, they've created the, the hat and they've, they've got different uh, jewellery and different blouses and stuff, but it just goes to show that a lot of these garments get used again and again. Uh, one of the few things that was made from scratch was Lord Grantham's tux. Uh, well, it's, actually, it's not a tux. I need to be very specific about that. His sort of his evening suit, his uh, his tail coat, was made by a, a London fashion house, uh, a London tailor whose name escapes me right now. But it, there's a, they're a Savile Row tailor. They wanted the um, publicity of our stuff is in Downton Abbey, so they offered to do it for a discount rate, which was still thousands of pounds. Uh, and that's just one, or I think they might have done Matthew's suit as well, but basically everyone else, all the other male characters, uh, they just hired their suits and altered them to fit. Because as Susanna Buxton explained, it really doesn't matter. Uh, you you're never going to be able to tell the difference when it's such a generic garment as a, a man's suit. Uh, so it's only for the PR value that they, they've got this fancy suit in there. Oh, and just finally, I've got um, Daisy's beautiful stripy pink dress, which is the only uh, original Edwardian dress to make it into the show intact, although, as you can see, they've added the collar at one stage. Um, they found this in a collection. It had never been worn, but it was original to the period. And um, because uh, Sophie... Oh, what's her name? Sophie McSherra, who plays Daisy, is so little, she just fitted the dress, and uh, it was... Uh, a happy coincidence. So I, I think I might end there. There we go. Thank you. Mm. <laughs> we'll move straight on to Peter because we're, we're running a little bit late. Right. I, I'm, I'm going to talk about kind of why we're all here and that's because we all love Downton Abbey and we all love it in a way, well, people who love the show tend to love it in a way that's different to the way they like other TV shows. Um, and that love's demonstrated, I think, by the way that people were mortally disappointed by the drop-off in quality in Series 2. Um, I know I was. In a way that normally if a show drops off, you go, oh, I'm not going to watch it anymore, it's got crap. With Downton Abbey, it was like a family member who was unwell, <laughs> that you had to give it care and you had to stick by them and be there for them because they'd, they'd come through one day and it'd be better and it'd be worthwhile again. And that type of dedication is rare for a show. We see it a lot with cult shows, um, niche shows, things. Last time I was here, I did a Buffy session. Buffy fans are hugely enthusiastic and engaged, but generally it's not... You don't get that type of engagement for such broadly popular shows, and it is massively popular. As Debbie was saying, it's 10 million in it, 20 million for the uh, Christmas special, less than EastEnders. Um, <laughs> but I want to talk about what makes it so beloved and what is it about this show that, that made it conquer Britain. This, to me, is what Downton Abbey is all about. It's about what it means to be good and about the struggles that you have to undergo to be good but how worthwhile and aspirational it is to be good. So right, right from the very early scenes, they set up Robert as a good man. Uh, when they hear about Titanic going down and, and they're like, oh, it's terrible, our heirs are gone down, they'll never be gone. He says something like, well, what about all those poor people in steerage as well? So, oh, you're a lord and you're thinking about those people in steerage. This is a good... What that is is a very clear signal that this is a good man. 
Uh, that's a message. And, that, and the first episode is all about setting up a test for Robert that he passes. And what that tells us as the audience is that good will win. When you're watching this show, good people will win. And that's enormously comforting for an audience to know that good will out in the end. Um, now, that sounds simple and, and not all that novel, but to understand how significant that is and what Downton Abbey set out to achieve, we'll talk a little bit about the TV landscape it came into in the UK. So when it started, uh, on the 26th of September 2010, it went up against Spooks. Anyone seen Spooks before? So Spooks, uh, intrigue, betrayal, good guys are bad guys, bad guys are good guys. It's a world where the line between good and evil is always blurred. We're never sure who's on what side. And it's quite a cynical show. Uh, the MI5, a- MI5 agents, who are normally the heroes of the show, have to choose often between the lesser of two evils. Uh, what's best to safeguard Britain? What evil will we tolerate? They're not clear choices to make. Also, the biggest soap in the country, EastEnders, with Corrie, uh, the, story highlights, the story highlights in the week that was leading up to Downton Abbey. Uh, Sam Mitchell, who was a glamour character played by Daniela Westbrook, who was notorious in Britain for uh, disintegrating the septum of her nose through cocaine abuse. Uh, and now she's a born-again born evangelical Christian. <laughs> her character was involved in a love triangle with a guy called Minty, who's a burly, mechanic, <laughs> salt-of-the-earth type, right? And the love triangle... Uh, Minty was in love with Sam. Would never get a glamour like her, though. And the third point in the love triangle, love triangle was Heather. I wish I had a photo of it. Fat Heather is how she's described. Heather is a loser. Heather and Minty are good people who are losers. They always lose. Uh, and in that, in that episode... Sam said to Heather, people like you are second best and you should know your place. This is a good... Heather is salt of the earth. She's the nicest person in the world. So it's dark and it's miserable and it's mean-spirited and most importantly, the good people lose. So this is what... uh, This is the TV landscape that Downton Abbey was coming into. And in its first episode, in the big story, we're given Robert going against the wishes and the pressure of his butler and his wife and his reputation. Remember Wicked O'Brien tripping baits so he fell down when they're all out there at the front when the Lord's coming in to visit them. It's important anyway, and Bates falls over and embarrasses uh, Robert. And against all of that, he, he did the right thing. And so right away, Downton Abbey said it's a very different type of show. It's uplifting and it's warm and it's shamelessly good. And that was a very bold move. Bold to conceive, bold for ITV to spend like a million quid an episode on it. Like, um, like we were saying, that Mel was saying, it's the most expensive show ever, I think. It's till Titanic. It's also bold for ITV to come into this space. This is BBC territory. How many Sunday nights have we spent watching ABC, watching the latest... BBC period drama. This is their patch. Uh, they have the experience, they have the reputation, they've got the costume archive that they have. Uh, so for ITV to go it alone, with an, spend that much money, six, seven million pounds, with an indie, Carnival, who was the producer, who hadn't made much period stuff before, certainly not on this scale, that was very bold. And it's also very difficult to pull off. There's a mentality in TV drama in the UK and in Australia that happy people make for bad drama. Good people are boring. (laughs) That the quest to be a better person isn't necessarily a very dramatic one. Now, in cop shows, that works. Cops are trying to be good. Um, Recently, you've had more twisted cop shows, true. And hospital dramas as well. They're trying to save lives. But in a personal drama, how much story juice would there be in people being good? Uh, I mean, in the UK, 
even the comedies are miserable. You know, Faulty Towers, which is probably the most iconic, memorable uh, British comedy ever, is, and The Office as well, they are both about the most horrible, horrible men. Basil Faulty is a horrible, horrible man, and there's no getting around that, and it's hilarious. But he's not a good person. No one in that show is good except for, um, uh, is it Polly? Polly the Nice, I don't know, yeah. Manuel. Manuel. Manuel's just a bit Now, let me tell you a story about the EastEnders story room. Uh, this is from some time ago in a forward planning meeting where Simon Ashdown, who was a writer at the time, who is now the, what they call the series consultant or the lead writer, he was in the room with the other writers, including Tony Jordan, who was the lead writer at the time, who you may know wrote Hustle, um, Life on Mars. Now, Simon pitched a story for Cat and Alfie, who were a famous uh, fav- favourite couple, Britain's favourite couple, basically. And the story would be that Cat would get pregnant. And so you get all the stories of a pregnancy. And then there'd be complications leading up to the birth, and the result would be a stillborn baby. And you get out of that months of grief and stress and tension between the two of them. And it was a great story. And, and Tony Jordan said, that's a great story, but who wants to watch that? And what he hit on there was something that's crucial to remember, that they're making entertainment. And there's a fine line between watching characters you love struggle for something that they really want and a show being so relentlessly miserable that you can't bear to watch it anymore. And Downton always remembered who wants to watch that. So it stayed away from this. All the characters in Downton are trying to be good. Robert to welcome an unwanted heir into his house and family. Bates to do his job. Uh, Carson to run the house according to his lofty standards. Mary to marry a man she loves is what she wants. Uh, Even little Gwen, she just wants to be a secretary. That's all she wants, to be a little bit better. To be a secretary, to find the typewriter. What is it? What's a typewriter doing in this house? Even (laughs) Even O'Brien has a moment of conscience after she puts the soap on the floor in what must be the most convoluted way to rob someone of their baby is to put their soap on the floor in the hope they get out of the bath and step exactly on that spot and fall over and lose their baby. Even then she had a moment of doubt where she said, no, my lady, stop, and it was too late. The people are trying to be good and down to remembers that viewers want their characters to be heroes. They want them to do good things. Now, they struggled a little bit in the second series of this, but in the main, that's a very comforting thing to know when you watch a show that wickedness will be punished or it will be depicted in such a way that it's not real wickedness, it's kind of enjoying fun to enjoy the villainy. We all laughed in that clip of Debbie's when, when O'Brien's out there smoking in the court. It's like, O'Brien, damn you. <laughs> it takes me to the next point that Downton Abbey is fun for all the family. <laughs> that bowl, it's poison. Could she be any more clear? That's poison. Daisy's distracted. Thomas is going around. She's got to crush it in. There's so much food. Daisy's stupid. We know that already. Here's this other bowl. That's seasoning. It's in a really similar looking bowl. Daisy's holding both bowls. What's... Oh, no. And it seems silly and lazy and obvious. And it is. It'd never make it into Mad Men. They'd never have something like that. But what it is, is that it's fun and it's clear. And it's something that Nana and her seven-year-old grandson next to her on the couch on a Sunday night can enjoy together. Now, family entertainment is, is hugely important in the UK. Um, big Saturday night shows like Strictly Come Dancing, which is there, Dancing with the Stars. It's much camper and funner in the UK. Um, Doctor Who is a big one. Shows that the whole family can sit down and watch together. And Downton's in that tradition. Um, we, we talked about, about pantomime earlier on. And panto is often used as a pejorative criticism of a show. Oh, it's so panto, meaning it's obvious and crudely drawn. But if you've ever sat in a, in a panto audience, 
what you're surrounded by are hundreds of people who are hugely, passionately and actively engaged in the story playing out before them. You know, he's behind you. Look over there. Watch out, Daisy. That one's poison. There's a scene later on on the stairs where she's holding both of them and he's this, like, which one's for the chicken? She's like, oh, oh, I don't know. And you're going, no, give him the right one. Give him the right one. And so that, say what you like about it. Like, it's obvious and it's silly and it is all those things. But, but bugger me, it's fun. And I think that's what is really important about Downton Abbey. It's fun to watch. Those types of stories are my favourite in Downton Abbey. I love all the big stuff. But the ones where you could turn to your little niece, nephew, grandson, who's eight years old, on the couch and go, what's going to happen next? (laughs) Oh, Daisy's silly. Who knows? She might put the poison on the chicken. I really enjoy that. You know, the typewriter, Anna finds a typewriter. She opens a box and she's like, oh, like what could be in the box? And the next thing is the typewriter and everyone, Carson and Mrs Hughes, are all standing around there going... <laughs> They're baffled by the presence of this typewriter. It's so silly. Um, even the missing snuff box. Remember when O'Brien and Thomas nicked the snuff box to frame Bates? Even that becomes a silly story that Anna and Bates turn the tables and they put the snuff box and they put it in Mrs. Hughes' room. Then it's so obvious. They're like, Anna's like, we should have a search, Mr. Carson, and we should have it now so they can't do anything to, to cover it up. And you see Mrs. O'Brien go, oh shit, what am I going to do? And her and Thomas, they're panicking. This is what makes it special for me, that it's so, it's so fun. It's like you wouldn't have necessarily known where the death is, whose death it's going to be, who's going to have the baby or who's going to get married. And when you've got that many characters to play with, you can really fiddle around. Like the marriage doesn't necessarily mean Mary and Matthew. It could mean Edith and someone we haven't met yet. Yeah. I mean, and that's, I think, the way they do it is they keep all of this in play, but they can drag people in to give you shorter stories. It's, it's great storytelling. Inviting us TV to speculate, in a way. Yeah. And so Gosford Park was really that, like, almost like an Altman movie set in... It was you an know, Altman movie. Well, yeah, yeah sorry, <laughs> but, like, almost like a kind of L.A. movie, like Shortcuts is what I was thinking of. Yeah. And then to have that in, into the um, British... You know, that, that, that's why they had Altman, because it was that kind of talking Flowy. over top of each other. Mm. And, and Downton kind of, I think, takes, you know, takes that Gosford Park milieu and then kind of runs with it over many seasons. But I reckon that the critical difference is there they had the murder mystery mm. as well. It's like they gave it something to make it finite. Like, yeah. this has happened and we need to solve it. With television, yeah. you can just go mm. like that. We want it to stretch for, you know, um, eight we t- episodes. We talked about it over dinner earlier that, that a lot of the storylines in Downton Abbey just don't go anywhere. You know, like the guy who comes back who might be... Um, melty face. The guy with the melted <laughs> face. <laughs> melty, melty face McGee. <laughs> when, when he came but, in, I was so excited by that because that, uh, in thrilling. a classic sort of soap trick, is something that your audience accepts as truth, as like a mm. fundamental truth. Episode one, our heirs have died, to mm. reveal that it's not. Yeah, so that, that was a really interesting story, but they pissed it away in one episode. Yeah, Maybe and it just sort of hangs in the work. air and then just sort of dissolved. Maybe. And I think Mrs. Hughes's boyfriend, as well, yeah. was another one. It was like, oh wow, mm. she has to choose. No, she doesn't. It just disappears. You know, yeah. it just sort of yeah. It was really disappointing. Some of those threads didn't get picked up, but maybe that's how he keeps you constantly just speculating and maybe Mrs Hughes's bow will come back. Maybe right. so will Melty Face. Maybe yeah, so will Melty Face. Season six, Melty Face will be Melty back. <laughs> but isn't that incredible that she made a decision that her duty was more important? 
her duty to the family and to the household was more important than true love. And that was seen to be a good thing. That happened in Gosford Park as well. Um, Helen Mirren played the housekeeper and she called herself a perfect servant because she has no life. She, she's this like, I'm, I'm the perfect servant. Yeah. I know exactly what they want before they want it themselves. But she's hollowed out her own entire being in service. Yeah. And I, I think that what you were saying before about the middle class, they are totally the whipping boys. Like, they, at least the working class get to be like, oh, Mr. You know, but at, at the... Um, and also the, the upper class are constantly coming into bat for the, the lower class people in everything from poor old Mr. Molesley and his, you know, erysipelous to um, uh, getting... Patmore's cataract? Yeah, Mr. Mrs. Patmore's cataract. Yeah. I mean, who would pay for that? Like, they'd be like, too bad, Mrs. Patmore, you're out on your ear. Um, but, of course, being the saintly, you know... Um, Earl, he can't do that. But of course, they're so mean about the middle class. You know how um, at one point the doctor, who um, Dr. Clarkson, who has to be the worst doctor <laughs> ever. He'll never <laughs> walk again. Oh, <laughs> oh <laughs> Maybe he will. But even though he tries to assert his professional, you know, um, authority, uh, then poor old... Um, What's her name? Uh, the Dowager Countess is like, you know, these people give them a little bit of power, it goes to their head like <laughs> strong drink. <laughs> like, well, because it connects, in a way, it connects in, in, that, um, in that naturalistic way, it connects the, the ruling class with the working class in a symbiotic relationship. So the, the working class is nothing without someone to serve. And the ruling class is nothing without someone serving them really dutifully and faithfully. And the middle class is this brand newfangled invention and they don't get mm. it yeah and, and they're like you're actually extraneous and you guys are the ones agitating for votes for women you guys are the ones kind of getting all up in our grill about everything and you know telling us to not have servants and telling us to you know so they they're almost seen as as extraneous but that's in also fellows as well and carlisle is the middle class as well but he's the middle class who's made money well, he's and a nouveau he just wants and status, he, doesn't he? he wants and he to be doesn't get the customs. He's yeah. the one who's wearing the wrong tweed and begrudging the servants their Christmas dinner. Mm. You know, he they should get be it. serving. Um, he, he doesn't get it. He's, he's gauche in a way because yeah. he and he doesn't understand they need to be sitting outside mm. for particular meals and things like that. So yeah, there's a there's a, there is a kind of, there are villains in the piece, but then but they're whole groups of people. You know, they're not. I mean, I, although I was trying to think of one one moment that Tom ever has that's redeeming and I couldn't think of one. I, for me it was when he discovers that his um, black marketing business is totally bullshit and he like tears apart He smashes shirt. everything up yeah. and then he kind of goes, oh, I need to straighten up and fly right. Well, he just no? decides to like he's weasel his way back <laughs> into the... But he he's he's shows sad, a human. But he's, he's tried to do something to better himself and it's failed. He's sort of been a bit, and he's really sad about it. But then his next move is to kidnap the dog and hide it yeah. in a shed. <laughs> he doesn't learn anything. This no is the one, problem. No one ever does. But well, also, no he, he, does. there was that kind of tender, almost love affair with Tom and the returned the soldier. And then he very tragically died and that seemed to be almost like, it was tantalisingly close that Tom would become sort of human and, and nice and then it just sort of got ripped away from But him, even, you so. know that scene where William is meant to be going to some other hospital because mm -hmm. he's not an officer and Thomas is like, you know, I'm a working class lad and so is he and, you know, mm. he deserves just the same as 
he's politicised in a way. Yeah. And so or he has a strong sense of grievance about what he doesn't have, Tom does. Mm. Which is why he kind of tries to gamble on the black market kind of thing. Yeah. So it's... <laughs> it, it, but might, of all those characters... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, of all those characters, I think we've, we've managed to touch on most of them tonight, actually, and they all had really complicated storylines. So please join me in thanking all of the people who are on the panel tonight. Debbie Enker, Peter Matifi, Mel Campbell, and I'm Karen Petrine. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to Acme Channel and the Acme website.